take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 21. Joshua, chapter 21. Uh, You can find that on page 195 of your Red Pew Bible, if you're using that this morning. So Joshua, chapter 21. Well, this morning we are going to be wrapping up the boundaries of the land that was given to Israel in the days of Joshua, uh, looking specifically at the cities which God designated for the Levites. Now, this is a chapter which we've anticipated uh, for some time now, since we have been regularly reminded by our author as he's traced out the boundaries of the land which were given to each of the other tribes, that the children of Levi received something that was utterly unique in their inheritance. Now, this is an important chapter because it concludes God's act of giving the land to the people. Everything from here on in the book of Joshua is focused really on the reaction of the people to the faithfulness of God. So this is really a pinnacle moment in the book of Joshua. This is sort of the cherry on top that completes the picture of how God kept all of his promises, which is interesting because as we've been clued into already, um, and as we'll, as we'll see as we read in this chapter, the Levites themselves did not receive a territory as their inheritance. Their portion was the priesthood. Joshua 18 verse 7 says, The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. So there was not a place in the nation of Israel which was called Levi. Rather, the Levites lived scattered among their brothers, sojourning in a way in cities throughout the land. They lived there among their brothers, executing their priestly duties, commissioned to serve the Lord and his people in a unique way, like shepherds being sent out to care for God's flock. Now, a shepherd's place is with his sheep, and the inheritance of the priesthood that the Levites received meant that they too needed to be with the people. So God didn't give the Levites a territory where they could go and seclude themselves from the other tribes. Actually, he placed them strategically among the people so that they could live there and urge their brothers on to live holy lives. This was the priestly portion. And our object this morning is to look at three things that the Levites received from God relating to that calling to the priesthood. As we do, I want to bring to your attention three ways that God provides for his church here and now, which is relevant for us since we read in Revelation 1, uh, verses 5 and 6, that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has not only freed us from our sins, but that he has made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So when we read this chapter, we're not reading about some act that happened some time ago that has no bearing on our lives. This is immensely impactful for how we view ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, the calling that he has placed on our lives as his church. As we do so, uh, let's begin by reading uh, God's word together. Um, This is a long chapter. Uh, And so as I have done, as we've hit these long chapters, I'll just go ahead and let you remain seated. But I will read uh, all of Joshua chapter chapter 21 for you this morning. So let's begin by reading our passage. This is the word of the Lord. 
Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them, At Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So, by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants from Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. The Merorites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon, they gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the, the descendants of Aram, one of the clans of the Kohathites, who had belonged to the people of Levi since the lot fell to them first. They gave to them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, which is, which, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city and its villages had been given to Caleb, the son of Jephthah, as his possession. And to the descendants of Aaron the priest they gave Hebron, the city of the refuge for the manslayer with its pastures, Libna with its pastures, Jatir which with its pasture lands, Eshtimoa with its pasture lands, Holon with its pasture lands, Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands, nine cities out of the two tribes, then out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Giba with its pasture lands, Anathoth with its pasture lands, and Almon with its pasture lands, four cities. The cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priests, were in all thirteen cities with their pasture lands. As to the rest of the Kohathites, belonging to the Kohathite clans of the Levites, the cities allotted to them were out of the tribe of Ephraim. To them were given Shechem, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, in the hill country of Ephraim, Gezer with its pasture lands, Kibzaim, with its pasture lands, Beth Haran, with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Dan, El Tech, with its pasture lands, Gibeathon, with its pasture lands, Ijalon, with its pasture lands, Gath Ramon, with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the half tribe of Manasseh, Taanach, with its pasture lands, and Gath Ramon, with its pasture lands, two cities. The cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites were ten in all with their pasture lands. And to the Gershonites, one of the clans of the Levites, were given out of the half-tribe of Manasseh, Golan and Bashan with its pasture lands, the city of the refuge for the manslayer, and Bishterah with its pasture lands, two cities, and one of the cities of Issachar, and out of the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with its pasture lands, Deborath with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, Enganim with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Asher, Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Helkath with its pasture lands, and Rahab with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh in Galilee with its pasture lands, the city of the refuge for the manslayer, 
Hamath-dor with its pasture lands, and Kartan with its pasture lands, three cities. The cities of the several clans of the Gershonites were in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. And to the rest of the, Levi, the, the Levites, the Merorite clan, clans were given out of the tribe of Zebulun, Jokneum with its pasture lands, Kartah with its pasture lands, Dimnah with its pasture lands, Nahalal with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Reuben, Bezer with its pasture lands, Jahaz with its pasture lands, Kidimoth with its pasture lands, and Maafatha. Oh, wow, man. I always one gets me. Mephath with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Gad, Ramoth and Gilead with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer. Mahanaim with its pasture lands, Heshbon with its pasture lands, Jazer, which is with its pasture lands, four cities in all. As for the cities of the several Merorite clans, that is, the remaining of the clans of the Levites, those allotted to them were in all twelve cities. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all forty-eight cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is clear as we read this and as you bear with me as I read over 40 verses of Israelite city names, we see that the focus of this chapter really is on the inheritance that God gave specifically to the Levites. But we're meant to read this chapter and to see it for its significance in the way that it evaluates everything that God did for the nation of Israel as a whole. The main idea of this chapter really is uh, captured by the evaluation that our author makes here in verse 45, which we've understood from the beginning is really the main message of the whole book of Joshua, that God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. Not one word, we are told, of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. What an interesting statement. What is interesting about that, really, is that how it's presented and when it is presented to us in this chapter. It comes to us only after the cities of refuge have been designated and the Levites were appointed to go to their respective cities throughout the land. We see that God may not have provided the Levites with a territory to call their own, but their inheritance had an important role to play in God's purposes for his people. So as we look at this chapter, what I want to do is I want to bring to your attention three things which the Levites inherited from God. We see first that they inherited a place to live. They inherited a place to live. God met their physical needs. Second, they inherited a ministry. They inherited a ministry. This was their inheritance from the Lord. Third, they inherited the fulfillment of God's word. They inherited the fulfillment of God's word. 
Well, God's regard for the Levites and the role that he appointed for them in their portion as a priestly people does two things. First, it assures us that God always keeps his word. And second, it teaches us to rely on the faithfulness of God as he provides for our needs. And that's what we want to look at this morning in our three points. So first, the first lesson that we're meant to take uh, from the inheritance which God gave the Levites is to come uh, to see and understand that God meets both our spiritual and our physical needs. It seems to me that oftentimes people tend to draw a line between the secular and the sacred, meaning that all too often we, re- we relegate God's interest in our lives to things that only consist of what we perceive to be spiritual things. We know that God cares about our prayer life. We know that we ought to read our Bibles. We know that we ought to go to church. But we fail to see what God could possibly be concerned about in things about like what we eat or what we wear, what we drive, or even the jokes that we tell each other. We can be tempted to put God and Jesus in church in a box, a box of holy things that are in a category all to themselves, rather than seeing them for what they are. They are the very foundation of our lives. God's treatment of the Levites in Joshua 21 shows us that God has regard for the needs of the heart and the soul just as he has regard for the needs of our physical bodies. The relationship that God's people have with him is the starting place for every other activity, every other need in their lives. We know that God knows and understands the weakness and the frailty of the human body. He made it. And we read in Psalm 103 that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. The book of Joshua makes it quite clear that the Levites had received an inheritance in and with God in a way that their fellow Israelites had not. Their inheritance was not in a place so much as that it was in an office, a a priesthood that meant day in and day out they were focused on ministering to the spiritual needs of their fellow Israelites. But just uh, just because God had called the Levites uh, to this office didn't mean that they didn't have physical needs themselves. They still needed a place to live. They needed a way to eat. They needed space for their flocks to be fed and to be taken care of. And so Joshua 21 shows us how God took care of the Levites, not just by calling them to this unique station as priests for Israel, but also by providing for their physical needs as well. In verses 1 through 3, we see that while the people were gathered together at Shiloh, the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and Joshua and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel and reminded them of the command of the Lord. They reminded them that the Lord commanded through Moses that they be given cities to dwell in with their pasture lands uh, for their livestock. So verse 3 tells us that by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel did just that. They gave to the Levites these cities with their pasture lands so that they could live in them. Now, the key thing that we're meant to notice here is that the tribes of Israel gave to the Levites out of the inheritance which God had given to them, almost as if we're witnessing some sort of tithe. The Levites may have been called to serve the spiritual needs of the people, 
but they had physical needs that had to be met as well. And so we see that God was providing for those needs through his own command. So as we read this chapter, we're seeing how the Levites not only received a portion in a merciful God in a relationship with him as priests for the people, but as we'll also see, which is what we'll see in our next point, and focus on our next point, but we're also seeing the way that God met those needs that they had, appointing these cities throughout Israel for the Levites to live in, and actually providing for a way for the, the tribes to share in the blessings that God had given them, since the Levites had been commissioned to intercede and to serve them before the Lord. So there are two great lessons we need to take from the way God met these physical needs of the Levites. First, we need to learn to trust God to meet our every need. The fact that God cared for the Levites, not just by providing an inheritance for them in himself in their priestly ministry, but the fact that he also provided for them places to live and thrive in the land that he had given them, shows us that God is not just concerned about meeting our spiritual needs, but he's also diligent to meet our physical ones. So let's resolve this morning to be done with this line that we tend to draw between our spiritual needs and our physical ones, between the secular and the sacred. If you are in Christ, then you are a new creature. The old has passed away and the new has come. How is it that we are so happy to say that we are trusting in Jesus to be the Savior of our souls, but then we get anxious about what might happen tomorrow, or even later today, or next year, or in the next five years? We must remember that if God is for us, then there is no one who can stand against us. And if God is so concerned, not just about meeting our greatest need, our need for salvation from sin, but also for providing for our other needs, then we should be filled with joyful confidence to live and and to delight in Him in everything. The Gospel, which is the great big story of God's work of salvation, is not a book that we open read from, and then put back on the shelf so we can just go on and live our lives as if it is irrelevant. No, it's more like a pair of glasses that we we put on, which chases out the distortion, brings things into focus, chases out the lies of sin, and helps us to see how the hand of God is involved in every detail of our everyday life. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, Paul asks in Romans 8.32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 5 that our Father in heaven knows every one of our needs, which is why he tells us not to be anxious about our lives, about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear. But rather, he tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to start there and to trust that all these things will be added to, to us. These things that we so often tend to get anxious about, we're told God will meet. Joshua 21 shows us that the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them is in tune with his creation, that he delights in providing for his creation richly. He provided the Levites uh, with with their priestly station, but he also provided their tables with bread and their flocks with grass. He gave them a roof over their head and a place in his presence. He filled them with a vision of his glory and the presence of his word. God met the Levites' every need. And so he also meets your every need, whether you are aware of it or not. 
So just as the Levites were not ashamed to come before the congregation to ask for what God had designated for them to receive to be given to them, so we must not be ashamed to come before the throne of grace to ask God to meet our needs as well. Now the second lesson that this passage teaches us is that we must not neglect God's calling on our lives to care for the physical needs of those whom he has called to care for us in our spiritual needs. God provided the physical needs, he provided for the physical needs of the Levites and their families through what he had already given to the 12 tribes. Did you notice that? God didn't give the territories to these tribes and then say, oh, except for these cities, which I've already marked this out, no, actually, there's an action being taken here by these tribes to physically give those cities to provide for the needs of the Levites. Their giving is what equipped the Levites to be able to do what God had called them to do without having to worry where they, about where they were going to live or how they were going to eat. And we see that this pattern is actually carried on into the New Testament and into, and into the way that the church functions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 through 12, Paul reminds churches that they ought to share the material blessings that God has given them with those who labor over them in spiritual things. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, we're commanded to consider the elders who rule well of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, which is to say that God has appointed the church to take care of those whom he has called to serve them. When we give to meet their needs, we show that we value their service and the blessings that God has poured out on us through them. Now, I don't preach very often on this, and part of that is because it is really awkward for me to stand up here and to preach to you on why you should financially support your pastor. I think the reason for that should be obvious. I'm your pastor. But I don't think that I would be faithfully handling this text if I didn't point out to you that the pattern which God has given to his people to care for those who labor over them in gospel ministry. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. As Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, I am not seeking a gift here. I am seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. This is something that God calls his people to. I want you to see why we give to support those who are called to ministry. Whether that's me, or whether that's a ministry partner, or a missionary partner, or just someone else who we have a relationship with, uh, who is laboring on in gospel ministry that God has equipped us to support. I am so thankful for all the many ways that, that many of you have showed your love to and appreciation to our family, especially in the past month. The cards and, and the, the words and the, the chocolate bars, Brad and Dorothy, were awesome. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for giving to that. And thank you for, for showing that appreciation. But as I, as I show you, as I'm telling you how, gracious, how, how grateful I am for that, I also want to encourage you to go on remembering the needs of those whom God has called to minister to you in your spiritual needs, just as Israel cared for the needs of the Levites through these physical cities. I do think that some churches come to a point where they just assume that the pastor, you know, well, man shall not live by bread alone, so he doesn't eat. That happens. There have been many youth pastors whose needs have gone completely unmet, even as they labor on 
Uh, and, and that ought not to be. The church must remember those whom God has called to serve in this way. This is the pattern laid out in the Bible, and this is our privilege as a church to be able to care for them. As we trust God to meet our physical needs and our spiritual needs, let us also consider how He has called us to employ those very same good gifts in meeting the needs of others as well, remembering Jesus' words when He says that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now the second lesson we have here, the second aspect uh, of what we see that God gave to the Levites is we see that they inherited a ministry among their brothers. They inherited a ministry among their brothers. As we look at the cities and the places that were set apart by the people for the Levites, we realize that they were scattered everywhere in Israel. Every tribe is mentioned in this chapter of what they gave to meet the needs of the Levites. We see that the Levites were then present in every place, every territory which God gave to the 12 tribes. Now the Levites we see break down into three clans or three families, the Gershonites, the Merarites, and the Kohathites, with that clan being distinguished by those who were descended directly from Aaron, who was Moses' brother and Israel's first high priest. These clans received their cities in a similar way to the way that the people had received their inheritance. We see that they drew by lot. The Levites who descended from Aaron, we see, received 13 cities from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The rest of the Kohathites received 10 cities from the clans of Ephraim, Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, which I understand to be the west side, Manasseh. The Gershonites received 13 cities from Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and then East Manasseh. And then we see that the Merarites received 12 cities in Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. 48 cities total. God met the physical needs of the Levites through these cities, but he also appointed them to live like this for another reason. You see, God gave the Levites a ministry among their brothers to spur them on in holiness and love and obedience to God. So if you had been an Israelite, no matter what tribe you had been from, wherever you lived in the territories that God gave to Israel, there was always a Levite close at hand. There was always a Levite there who was there to encourage you to love God, who was there to model what it meant to love your neighbor, who was there to instruct you in the ways of holiness. They were there to make intercession for you and to minister to you and your family. It was a big deal to have someone like this living close to you. And you've got to wonder how people may have felt about the prospect of living with the priest next door. I remember when Ellie and I were first looking at houses when we were called to serve here, and um, we were total newbies at the time. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing. We just knew we wanted to buy a house because we wanted to invest our lives here. We wanted to be among you. And we were excited about that prospect and we had no idea what we were doing. So Nate Meyer really graciously uh, helped me out by going to look at these places that were available. I remember the first house we came to, he walked straight up to the fireplace and stuck his head right in, looked up and said, yep, this needs some help. And I thought, man, I have brought the right man with me. I was so grateful for that. And I remember looking specifically uh, later on at one of the houses that came kind of in second place. And it happened to be located on this, uh, right next to their house, or like just down the street. And I remember Nate saying he wasn't sure about having his pastor live that close to him. 
uh, something about not wanting him, uh, not wanting me to hear him yell at his kids or something like that. Uh, now he was he was utterly joking, and I, I. But at the same time, there is a point there, right? I get it. Nobody wants to have somebody looking over their fence, scrutinizing every move they make. That's why we put up privacy fences, right? It's even worse because then it looks like you're trying to keep the pastor out if you put up privacy fence. So. I don't know what these people would have felt like living in these cities with the priest next door. But we need to understand that God had a great purpose for scattering the Levites throughout the land like this. God didn't want the people to live with their ministers at an arm's length. These cities were strategically chosen, strategically appointed by Lot, we see, by God himself. Because God had called these Levites to minister among the people. To, to ensure that they were pursuing holiness, to push them to flee sin, to, to show them the glory of the face of God. When God gave this unique inheritance of priesthood to the Levites, he didn't call them to set themselves off from the rest of the people like a bunch of holy hermits. He put them in their midst to be ministers, to be shepherds, to help his people walk in obedience, to help his people understand the law, and to teach them to love the Lord with all their heart, the one who had given them this great land. He put them there to call sinners to repentance. He put them there to call them to seek shelter in the grace and the mercy of a loving God. God had a priority for setting apart these particular cities for the Levites in the midst of the people. And that's clear for a couple reasons. Notice that God appointed the Levites to receive and to live in all six of the cities of refuge that we looked at last week. That's an interesting detail. I don't know if you caught it when I read through the whole thing. That's part of the reason I wanted to read through the whole chapter. Because there's this refrain, the city of the manslayer. The city of the manslayer. Six times... That meant that the Levites were always close at hand to help the elders of the city as they heard the accounts of these people who were on the run from the avenger of blood. They were always there, and they were ready to help protect the nation against incurring a blood guilt and and ensuring the wrath of God against them. So they're there for that purpose. Second, it means that the Levites were there living beside those manslayers. Talk about an interesting scenario. Here you have someone who's murdered their, well, who's killed their neighbor on accident, but still has shed blood, living next to the priest, who was always making intercession for the people. They were commanded, the Levites were commanded as citizens of these cities to receive these people in, to make sure that they had a place to live, and then to protect them from the person who was seeking their life. In effect, the Levites were functioning as an extension of God's mercy and grace, giving refuge to people who were running for their life. God's mercy through the Levites is shown in the hands and the feet of these people and experienced by the people because of that. The third, we see that by dwelling in the six cities of refuge, the Levites were experiencing God's mercy and grace for themselves. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, But one of the cities of refuge that is mentioned here is the city of Shechem. Shechem was the place where Levi and Simeon had tricked the prince of that place and the men of the city 
into being circumcised. And while they were in their pain, they went through the city and meticulously and brutally slaughtered each one of them because of the way the prince of that city had treated their sister. Jacob cursed Levi and Simeon for that action. So can you imagine living as a Levite in the city where your ancestor had carried that act out, which led to your whole tribe being scattered throughout Israel? you imagine the weight of what it would be like to think to yourself, this place, right? it would be like living in the Alamo. The blood is not even, it, it, it's, it's there. And I live there. My ancestor was that manslayer, actually a murderer. And God has shown mercy to me. And as much as the Levites were a refuge to the manslayer who was on the run, in a much greater way, they experienced for themselves refuge in God. They experienced refuge in the one who had turned their curse into a blessing. When Jacob spoke about what would happen to Levi's descendants, he told them they would be scattered among their brothers. That happened. Levi didn't get a territory the way his brothers did. But Joshua 21 shows us that God had a righteous purpose for that wicked action. That what they meant, what Levi meant for evil, God meant for good. So God scattered Levi, but he did so for the purpose of gathering his people to him. He sent Levites to every part of Israel so that they could tend his flock and teach the people and admonish them and encourage them to walk rightly before the Lord of hosts. He commissioned them to show grace as they themselves had received grace. And the work he has given to them, he has now extended to us, to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. There are two lessons we ought to take from this point. First, Learn to lean on the shepherds that God has put in your life. Learn to lean on the shepherds that God has put in your life. God has appointed pastors, elders, overseers, whatever you want to call them, bishops, I suppose. It's a little confusing. Um, but he has appointed them for your good, to shepherd you. Opening your life up to someone else can be hard. But God gave the office of pastor to the church to be a blessing. So be willing to be invested in outside of just the time we have with each other on a Sunday morning. Let me just say this. I am so thankful for the way that you as a church regard the importance of my time. But let me also say that you are not an inconvenience to my ministry. You are my ministry. God has brought us together here and now for the purpose of holiness. So let's walk in that together. The second lesson we should take from this is to understand that God has called you to a ministry just as he called the Levites to be a light in dark places. Today is Reformation Sunday. One of the key doctrines that was recaptured in the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10 through 10 say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The situation of the Levites echoes in so many ways the situation of Christ's church. 
because we have been called to a ministry, proclaiming a gospel in the dark places of this world, living next door to sinners and to people who hate God and sharing the gospel with them and loving them as we ourselves have been loved. We don't come to God through an earthly priest the way that people in the Old Testament did. We come boldly to the throne of grace because we've been covered with the righteousness of Christ and we have been set apart and called to be his witnesses. The Levites received their cities, but they had no place to call their own. Likewise, the Bible calls us to be strangers and sojourners here on earth, living in a sinful world as ambassadors for Jesus. Our inheritance is not here and now. Our inheritance is in Christ with God. And we share a mission together to point others to the throne of grace where they too may receive life and salvation forevermore. So the Levites received a ministry among their brothers. Thirdly, we see that they inherited the fulfillment of God's word. They inherited the fulfillment of God's word. Now if we are to live by faith, then we must begin by trusting that what God has said and what he has promised is true. God's word is the foundation that we stand on as his people since it is his revelation to us about himself. It is the authority for all that we believe and all we do as followers of Christ and the sword that the spirit wields in our hearts, our minds, and our souls to bring change in our lives so that we become more and more like Christ. So, if you remember, one of the big Reformation battle cries was sola scriptura, scripture alone. That battle cry falls short, it falls flat if God doesn't keep his word. So we need to be assured that he does. That's what makes the closing verses of this chapter so sweet and beautiful in the ear of the people of God. The book of Joshua as a whole serves as a testimony to the faithfulness of God to keep all of his promises. It's striking to read here in verses 43 through 45, uh, here at the end of Joshua 21, as if we're meant to understand that now, with the appointment of these cities, that God's promises to Israel and their fathers to give them this land was finally complete. It's as if without this action, it wouldn't have been complete. So we shouldn't read Joshua 21 as some sort of like appendix or as a footnote to what God was doing. No, this really is the crowning moment of the book because it's here that our author announces God's victory for his people. It announces the triumph of God's word. Notice how this chapter actually begins and ends with a focus on the word that God has spoken. In verses 1 through 3, the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Joshua and the authorities of the people asking that the command, the word of the Lord concerning them would be fulfilled. And then now, here in verses 43 and 45, we're told that thus, with the giving of these cities, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he had swore to give to their fathers. So the Levites may not have received their own territory, but until they had received these cities, the word that God had spoken was not fully fulfilled. But now we understand, now that this has taken place, it stands that not one word of the good promises which the Lord had made to the houses of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Now this is a more complete version of what we read in Joshua 11, verses 21 through 23. Now it's really clear for us to see the faithfulness of God to keep all of his promises. 
God gave Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. They took possession of it. They lived there because he gave them victory. Not one of all the enemies who they faced had been able to withstand them. They lived there now in peace because the Lord gave them rest on every side. Not one word of God's promises had fallen short of what he had said. And the conclusion we're meant to take from this is that God is faithful and able to do everything that he says. There are three convictions about God's word that we ought to take from these verses. First, we need to understand that God's word endures. God's word endures. You need to understand that when the author says that the promises which God made to their fathers is going all the way back to Abraham, over 400 years has passed at this point since God told Abraham and his descendants that they would receive this. 400 years. That is a long time. Having to wait on God to fulfill his word can make us anxious. It can tempt us to doubt. It can test the patience of our faith. But patient faith is precious faith because of the way that it exalts God in His holiness. The heart of faith can wait on God and endure by His grace when it is satisfied in Him and when it is fixed on His Word. Joshua 21 verses 43 through 45 is intended to teach us that God's word is worth waiting on because it endures. The Bible is more than just a holy book among holy books. It is God's own self-revelation. We know him through it. It is applied, as it is applied to us through the work of his spirit. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The word of the Lord endures. We serve a God who is worth waiting on. Second, we're meant to understand and learn that God's word is powerful. So God's word endures. God's word is also powerful. Scripture is what we call a word act revelation. And what I mean by that is that God's word is his own authoritative interpretation of his work in creation. Who God is is evident through his actions. His word always accompanies those actions so that we see his glory in them. His work is never left up to self-interpretation as if we're just supposed to figure it out. Joshua 21 doesn't end by just telling us that the Levites received some cities and expect you to see the significance of what's happening. No, it actually interprets the situation for us so that we'll see that despite all the instances of Israel's rebellion, despite every threat that they face in Egypt and in the wilderness and on the battlefield, God kept His word. He fought for his people and he won for them. Joshua 21 points us to the power of God by making us cast our gaze on the power of his word. Towards the end of his life, Martin Luther, reminiscing on what God had accomplished in Germany and throughout Europe in the recovery of the core truths of the Christian faith, said, 
from my from the beginning of my reformation i have asked god i have asked god to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels but to give me the right understanding of his word the holy scriptures for as long as i have god's word i know that i am walking in his way and that i shall not fall into any error or delusion that my friends is the power of god's word it has the power to wake sleepy souls It has the power to strengthen weak and drooping hands. It has power even to raise the dead. God's word is powerful. Finally, this teaches us that God's word is true. God's word is true. These concluding verses, uh, we need to see, uh, we need to see and understand that they are meant to teach us that God's promises hold fast, that not one of his words that which he has spoken will return to him null or void, but that just as the rain falls from the heavens and does not return until it has watered the earth, so God's words always have their effect. How else can we have confidence in the salvation that is spoken to us in the gospel? Can you imagine preaching a gospel like Jesus does, which says, come, deny yourself, take up a cross and follow me, and then wavers? No. We need to know that this is true. How else can we say that to live is Christ and to die is gain? How else can we warn others with the sort of urgency that is becoming of the gospel message of the wrath that is to come? Because God's word is trustworthy, the authority of God's word is unquestionable. And because it is authoritative, we who have believed in Christ can have confidence to follow him on the path of the cross. So we've looked at three things which the Levites received in this inheritance. We've seen how God provided for their physical needs. We've seen how God gave them a ministry in and among their brothers. And finally, we've seen how they received the fulfillment of God's word. He has done the same thing for us. And as we seek to live in faithful response to the gospel of Jesus, we ought to remember these things and put them into action as we seek to live for him who has purchased us out of darkness and brought us into his glorious light. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand in awe of you this morning because you have provided for every need that we have. Father, you have called us to trust you. And and I realize that this morning that many of us uh, may be here and there may be some serious needs in our life that we are waiting and, and trusting you uh, to meet. Uh, we don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon. We're completely relying on you. But because of what we see in your word, we have faith to know and to trust that you who have called us and saved us out of sin will not stop short by not giving us bread. You will not stop short by giving us shelter. You will not stop short of giving us the fellowship that we need to thrive in the body of Christ. Father, this morning we want to stand in awe and thankfulness of you. We thank you that you have defended the clarity and the authority and the integrity of the gospel message throughout these many years. And as we seek to as we seek and earnestly seek the day when Christ will return and make all things new and bring faith into sight. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our hearts and strengthen our minds and strengthen our souls with true and right affections for you so that our worship would be, would be 
pleasing in your sight, and also that we would endure as we are held fast by your spirit as he works in us and as he applies his, your word to us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.